Hey, this is Brian Neville O'Neill, host of Pod Rocket, the Log Rocket podcast. Um, with me is Ben Edelstein, co-founder of Log Rocket and other host of Pod Rocket. Hey, Ben. Hey, Brian. Uh, you you hesitated a bit there when you said Pod Rocket, the Log Rocket podcast. Yeah, it's really hard to say Pod Rocket, the podcast for Log Rocket. It, I just I don't want to sound silly. You know, it'll require some work. Well, luckily, this is only the first episode, so we'll have a chance to improve over time. But I'm really excited to be here, and I had a chance to sit down with Fred Schott, the creator of Snowpack and the founder of Pika, and we had a really interesting conversation, so I hope everyone enjoys that. You uh, had a chance to talk to Kaylin from our team, right? Yep. I sat down with Kaylin, our front-end engineer. We talked about Webpack 5, kind of what's new, what you should consider uh, when upgrading or not upgrading, and... Then we talked about a bunch of other stuff, which kind of happens when Kaylin and I get together, but it's always a lot of fun. So you want to get started? Yeah, let's do it. So now I'm really excited to welcome Fred Schott. Um, He's the founder of Pika and the creator of Snowpack and Skypack. And um, these are rapidly growing tools in the front end space. And so really excited to have Fred here on the podcast. How are you today, Fred? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start with Snowpack because I think that's probably the most influential project that you're involved in. And for you know, for the audience who may not be familiar with Snowpack, could you give us like a quick introduction? You know, how should we be thinking about Snowpack? What does it do? And then we, we can go from there. Yeah, sure thing. So Snowpack is primarily a tool for web developers, and it's meant to solve this kind of complexity wormhole that we've found ourselves in. There is this concept of having to bundle your site which is the idea that every time you want to build a website and you have you know, some functionality, some CSS, some styling, all these different things that uh, make up a website. Traditionally, that has required this idea of bundling it all together, combining multiple files together to kind of solve this idea that a, a browser isn't as efficient when it has to make hundreds of requests for hundreds of different files at once. Snowpack is a different take on that problem, where instead of forcing you to do all of that work, especially when you're doing development, it actually kind of pushes that problem off to only a production concern. So in development, you're no longer doing that uh, bundling work. You're only really doing that work for production, which is kind of a flipping of the model. And the result is that you just get a much quicker, a much faster iteration flow for development because you're not doing all this extra work that traditionally you have to do every time you hit save. You have to do some form of bundling to kind of rebuild your site. So it's this kind of return to basics where you know, we're writing these languages for the web browser that are meant to run on the browser, but we're stuck in this hole where we have to essentially compile on every save. This solves that headache. So Snowpack essentially is an alternative to Webpack. Is that the right way to, you know, it would, be, it would replace web, Webpack in my, as my build system? Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting because people are always comparing which bundler should I use? And we're just kind of like, you don't need a bundler bundler. So yeah, it's an alternative to Webpack. But the difference is that you're able to then connect any bundler that you want to the kind of end of that production workflow. So the end result, whatever you end up shipping to your users, ends up running through Webpack. That's still our recommended bundler. So the end result is still exactly the same as a traditional kind of bundled all the way down approach. But we're an alternative in that it's a different type of build pipeline. It's an alternative way to design your build pipeline, but with a similar end result and a faster dev environment. So Fred, just for folks that maybe have only used Create React app or haven't really gotten in the weeds with Webpack, give me a quick overview of like what does Webpack do, what is bundling, and why is it important to building a modern front-end application? Yeah, sure thing. I'd love to. The basic premise of web development is that we're doing this type of programming that wouldn't run directly in the browser. 
This is something that kind of got introduced with NPM as a sort of common community that we're all pulling code out of as a way to share code, but also as a way to share code that doesn't really run in the browser directly. You know, the traditional days of, okay, I just want to like load jQuery and you have this like jQuery.js. I just want to load something and stick it in the browser and it'll all just kind of work by default. We've really moved away from that model for web development in the last kind of eight or so years towards this world where we have this one giant JavaScript community where NPM, I think, is the most popular community of packages of code that you can reuse, like by a mile. But the trade-off there was that you kind of need to do some tooling to make it work in the browser. So you can't just ship it. You have to do a little bit of uh, processing of it. That processing is traditionally called bundling. So it's this idea of taking many, many files that you're working on and combining them, concatenating them, trying to turn them into as few requests for your user as possible. So the idea that browsers can make one big request much faster than they can make a hundred smaller requests. Some of that's based on an older model of thinking where older browsers like literally would just kind of bottleneck at like three requests in at once. So some of that's old, but there's still that general concept of, you know, if you can combine files together, generally it's a good idea to do that. Your browser will load it faster and it also compress better. So with that in mind, we've all started bundling pretty much, you know, as a de facto choice, not just as a production optimization, but to use all this great code to use React or Vue or Svelte or any, you know, popular JavaScript projects and framework. Bundling is essentially built in by default. It's assumed. If you're going to a, like a boot camp today, you're essentially learning how Webpack works as your first kind of uh, introduction. And again, the, the trade-off there is, is a, it was not a bad one to have the biggest community of packages in the world. That's a really powerful thing. But slowly the model changed from kind of the simplest of, of ways to do development to now complexity is assumed by default. And it's really raising the kind of difficulty level to get started. A lot of people end up using tooling that they maybe don't understand because they want to get started. And that's not anyone's fault. But, you know, I think everyone's felt that feeling of like, okay, something's broken. Let me go fix it. Ah, there's all these files of configuration and, and bundling tooling and ah, what's going on here? That's the model that Snowpack and the different projects we're working on are, are trying to flip on their head a bit. Taking complexity out as an assumed thing and much more of a thing that you kind of pull in as needed to solve a specific problem. Our early tagline was, you know, bundle because you want to, not because you need to. Yeah, and I guess until recently, I hadn't realized how far some of the browsers have come. And I'd be curious for your thoughts, like, imagine if you're building a new web application today and you're only targeting the newest version of Chrome. What are the assumptions or, or what are the, you know, what are the aspects of the modern build system for a web application that are purely to support old browsers that you could you know, ignore if you were only targeting the newest browsers. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole premise of Snowpack is this idea that for development, you're basically, you're almost assumed to be using a modern browser. Very few people are doing their development, i.e. 11, um, or some older legacy browser. It's this idea that if you use a modern browser, you can take advantage of modern features and the web becomes a lot more just kind of friendly to the developer. You have these features that you can kind of use natively versus having to compile them and you know slow down your dev process every time you save those files. Snowpack's whole premise is that you're using a modern browser to develop and then you're building it as a part of like the kind of build pipeline for a legacy browser, for a slower or less modern browser. So you at that moment, which you run much less often of that build, that's where you kind of go and handle that legacy. But to take advantage of a modern browser, you get things like uh, ESM, that idea of importing and exporting is really something that exists in those modern browsers that you can take advantage of. So 
you know, part of the reason of why we were all okay with bundling at all points of development was because that ESM syntax really wasn't there in most browsers at that time. There wasn't really any better way to do it versus, you know, again, just throwing scripts on a page, which doesn't scale. It, it becomes problematic pretty quick. So ESM was really the biggest one that we saw where now that it was in modern browsers and now today it's in all browsers, you get that idea of every file build is essentially one-to-one. Source file comes in, we build it, like end result for the web browser comes out. That means that you can essentially cache every build forever until you change it, right? If you load a page and loads a hundred files, you're probably only doing work on a few of those at a time, which means that like next time you start up, every file that hasn't changed just gets to be reused. So if you aren't changing files, we essentially cache that build result forever. So it's a really efficient model, both in terms of our ability to cache and our ability to uh, speed up your development by not doing that work. And is there analogs in production? Like, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, kind of the model is like use Skypack in development and then Webpack or another bundler for production. But if you want to take advantage of having the app broken down into individual parts that the browser can optimize the loading of, can you set that up as well? Yeah, so it's kind of where we draw the line of what we give at the end of a, a snowpack build is an unbundled site. So it looks a lot like what you were seeing in development. Every file is loaded individually. For a lot of people, that's enough to deploy and be pretty happy with. And we have some optimizations on top of that to kind of make that even faster. The idea of, you know, you're loading a big graph of files. We can kind of ahead of time tell the browser what you'll need. So instead of this kind of like waterfall, you just kind of get it all up front. So we can even optimize that sort of unbundled dev-like experience. And then it's up to you kind of how you want to go from there. You can add, add a bundler, you can add Webpack, you can kind of return to that older model of bundling, but only as a build time step. So our take is that most people don't need a bundler. You know, companies with users, they probably need bundlers because they have a performance story they want to hit. But like, I just built a, a website for my parents. And like, as a just fun little thing, like I didn't need all this complexity. They don't care if it's a 100 millisecond load time or a 500 millisecond load time. Um, a lot of projects don't need that complexity right off the bat. They can pull it in as needed. You mean you didn't use a, a microservices architecture on Kubernetes? <laughs> <for your laughs> yeah, no, I did not. I used I used Snowpack, which was a fun little dog tweeting exercise. And I imagine, like, w- while there are performance advantages to loading the bundle, I bet there are certain cases where if you're iterating super rapidly on your site, or you have, you know, you're often pushing small changes, to not need to invalidate the cache on a large bundle for a one line JavaScript change and just be able to have the browser of your end users reload that one file. There are probably cases where yeah. that is actually a big performance benefit. A hundred percent. If it's an app that you're coming back to day after day, there's a real performance gain specifically related to caching for having each file individually loaded. Because it means that same story of like, if the file never changes, we don't have to rebuild it. That same story applies to the user. If the file never changes, they don't have to load it a second time. So they're coming back to the site even if they've redeployed five times, they're only having to reload the files that have changed. That's a really kind of exciting part of this model that we're still exploring. But, you know, there are clear cases where that unbundled approach actually is a better performance story. SEO-focused blogs where you're just kind of coming and going, bundling still makes a lot of sense. But if you're like an app like Figma or Gmail where you're coming back multiple times as a user, that's a really compelling performance story. Got it. And so let's say that, you know, I'm interested in trying out Snowpack in my existing React application, or it doesn't have to be React, my existing front-end application. What does the getting started story look like? How easy is it to integrate? And, you know, if I have an existing application? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a really hard one to answer kind of generally. It really depends on 
what your current setup looks like. We would essentially, you know, to move to Snowpack would be to kind of move your build setup. So if you've done a ton of customization, kind of depends on, on how much of that is custom logic that needs to be ported over. If you're using something like Create Snowpack app or some other kind of generally available setup where you actually haven't done a lot of custom work yourself, you're relying on some kind of boilerplate. Uh, we generally support most of those same characteristics of a Create React app starter application. So our Create Snowpack app, which is like our take on that same flow, is actually meant to be a one-in-one -one, uh, replacement. So you could theoretically just copy your source directory, your source files, copy your kind of other files, and run it, and it should just work. And for the Webpack config that I have existing, does Snowpack have a kind of config file that's a similar format or even the same format to Webpack config? Or what does it look like to port over customized uh, Webpack configurations? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really kind of cool part of the model. This idea that we have a configuration file similar to Webpack where you would configure your build, but the complexity that Webpack brings is much more about the idea that everything you're configuring is a part of a bundler. So like the assumed thing is like, okay, how does this tool I want to bring in work with bundling? How does this all kind of fit together? You end up building for a kind of complexity assumed world. Uh, Snowpack takes this different approach where, okay, because we're not doing this bundling work, we can actually start to treat files individually. So we can start to connect like SAS and a SAS plugin only looks at SAS files. You can connect uh, Babel and it only looks at JS files. You can connect you know, any number of tools and really just kind of specify down, strip down what they actually do to have this really clean one-to-one -one transform model. So we have a configuration, but it's really about just plugging in the tools that you want and not having to like, okay, how does this affect the loader? How does this affect the bundler? How does this affect the plugin? It all, at the end of the day, we just kind of build you a classic JavaScript, CSS, HTML website that then can then be optimized. And one question is like, if you're using you know, Snowpack in development for my bundling, and then as you, as you mentioned, you know, you can kind of use any bundler you want for production, let's say Webpack, is there any risk of like bug kind of uh, issues or bugs that happen in development that don't happen in production because you're using different uh, bundlers for dev and production? Or or are there any other trade-offs, I guess, of using Snowpack over using Webpack for both dev and production? Yeah, that's we get that question uh, every so often. It's kind of one of those things that we're all already doing. We've all already kind of made that jump. If you look at like what a Create React app does, it's a totally different configuration for production versus development. Uh, maybe not totally different, but it's there's definitely a lot going on between the two where you need to test in both anyway. So we've already kind of crossed that chasm. The difference is that we really, the build that Snowpack outputs by default looks almost identical to what you're seeing in development. So we do kind of have this idea of like, we'll kind of leave you at this checkoff point where it's like, okay, you have the site, it looks a lot like development, and now how do you want to optimize it? And really then it's just like, okay, I've connected Webpack to it and I can kind of test the before and after of that. So you kind of get this, if you trust that Webpack's doing the right thing and you trust that Snowpack's doing the right thing, there is this kind of clear handoff versus again, the traditional kind of, it's all one big bundle and you kind of have to, okay, I hope this worked. It's kind of a black box. The nice part about that flow is you get these kind of like handoffs where this handoff of responsibility means you can really test the input and output, the result of Snowpack and then the result of Webpack. Another question I have is I know that you know there's a lot of talk about Webpack 5 and some of the improvements they've made to performance with um, you know better caching and tree shaking and like how does the approaches you've taken with Snowpack at all, are there any overlaps with kind of some of the improvements in Webpack 5 or you know how, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, that's a really, um, really interesting part of the relationship is that I, I was actually really, really impressed by how many 
web standard kind of moves they made in Webpack 5. So this idea of, you know, Webpack traditionally kind of falls into this rabbit hole of, I do this custom code that only works in Webpack because of this Webpack logic. And now I'm not actually writing JavaScript that would ever run in the browser. I'm writing JavaScript for the Webpack compiler. They've taken a lot of steps away from that. Web workers as a technology is the idea that you can kind of run code off of the main thread. They've actually added support to just basically create one of those in the way that the browser would understand versus some sort of special import this worker from Webpack. And they've really moved towards a standard way of doing things on a lot of different parts of the bundling kind of mechanism. So in that way, we can kind of make this really nice connection between us as Snowpack being this modern dev environment. It's unbundled. You can write your code in a way that would work on a modern browser that you're doing development in and then hand it off to Webpack. And Webpack is then going to connect that modern standard into its bundling. So you can write the modern code and Webpack will understand the modern code. So it's a really nice kind of symbiosis where we don't necessarily, you know, the build is the bundle that's kind of production only. So you don't run that as often. So there's not the same kind of, okay, how can we get our bundling per change times down? Ours are essentially down to like 10, 20, 30 milliseconds per file save. So it's really fast because we're not doing that bundling work. The other interesting part is module federation, which was kind of the big marquee feature of Webpack, which is this idea that the problem with bundling is you kind of lock all your code into these bundles and it means there's not a lot of opportunities for natural reuse um, without some special like mechanism for Webpack to say, okay, this code lives in this bundle, this other bundle can load it from that bundle this kind of like restitching of bundles where they can start to load code from each other is essentially what module federation is meant to solve. What's interesting about this kind of unbundled approach is that's just what the browser does by default. Um, if you're shipping your code without that sort of webpack optimization, code can always load from different files. It's that idea that like, give me the URL and I'll import it. And the browser is smart enough to not ever, you know, double load something. It'll cache it. You get this really nice performance story by just reusing files by URL. Obviously, you need to balance that with optimization and with, and with kind of minimizing the number of requests, but it's one of the really interesting things about this unbundled model um, that you kind of get some things that Webpack is really struggling to deliver on for free built into the model of just how the web has always worked. Right. It's kind of the everything old is new again. You know, we yeah. back in the day, we'd build our web apps and we'd import a bunch of scripts like jQuery and the browsers were smart enough to, to load those appropriately. and. Then we went to the the world of bundling where everything was bundled into a, a five megabyte, you know, JavaScript file that takes forever to download. And now it sounds like with this approach, going back and kind of letting the browsers do what they're good at, which is loading JavaScript files from a variety of sources and doing that intelligently and um, in a performant way. So. Yeah. So much of the last decade has been recreating what the browsers have been working on for decades. This idea of yeah, shipping bundles and then essentially Webpack is your module system. But this is a, definitely a return to letting the browser do its caching, do its loading, and optimizing things for you, which turns out browsers are pretty good at doing that. So I think this is a good segue to talk about your other project, uh, Snowpack. Uh, sorry, Snowpack, Skypack. Uh, yeah. So maybe tell us a bit about Skypack, how it fits in with Snowpack, and yeah, we can go from there. Yeah, Skypack is definitely one of those like too cute by half, I think is the phrase where it's like, it sounds the same, but to the point where it's like, oh wait, what's the difference? The two are definitely two sides of the same coin, which is where that kind of naming scheme comes from. Skypack is this idea of a CDN for JavaScript. So if you've used uh, JS Deliver, Unpackage, similar concept of everything on NPM being available at our CDN. The interesting take that we have is that everything is upconverted to ESM. So this idea of unbundled development only being possible with the native ESM module format. 
if you've ever used like the import keyword or the export keyword when you write your JavaScript, it's essentially just the ability of the browser to go in, okay, great, I'm gonna go load this file as a dependency. So everything on our CDN has been upconverted to that format, which means you don't need to go like searching around for, okay, it's, it's jQuery slash dist slash jQuery dot min dot JS. You know, every package ships things differently. Our job is essentially to bring that all into a standard format where you can just say import jQuery or import React or import view. It's all a consistent format built for this import statement that we're already using, but connecting that from your kind of local development into a uh, third-party CDN. So there's no tooling, there's no NPM install. You're trying to just get it delivered right to the browser on demand whenever you need it. And what's the level of support for that among, you know, I imagine something that the modern browsers support, but is there enough backward compatibility there if you're targeting a reasonable array of older browsers? Or is that something where you need a, a polyfill to support uh, that, those keywords? Yeah, we're really at the point now where every modern browser, every browser that has meaningful use has support for this. IE11 is the last holdout. But I think as of yesterday, today, like imminently in October, um, Microsoft is essentially like leaving mainstream support for IE11. And I think they've even said at the end of the month, or maybe that's next month in November, they're starting to drop support for IE11 in their own products. So they've really been doing the work to make sure that Edge has this kind of backwards compatibility layer that then allows everyone to drop IE11. So certainly it's there for most sites, unless you really have kind of old enterprise customers that are like really hanging on to IE11 after Microsoft even said stop using it. But certainly within the next year, even Microsoft is abandoning those, uh, those projects, those companies. So it's ready for almost everyone to use today um, and essentially completely out there by the end of next year. I can hear millions of developers, everyone who's ever built a website around the world cheering at IE11 no longer being <laughs> I remember at my old company, we threw a like goodbye party for IE6, I think it was, like a cake, balloons, everything. Yeah, it's, this is a really interesting moment where IE11 going away is actually kind of the last anchor browser in that idea of everything used to have these kind of really long adoption cycles and really long kind of maintenance cycles. IE11 going away, it's the last browser that doesn't have automatic upgrades and it doesn't have that idea that even enterprises should upgrade to get the latest security. So really, it's a, it's a kind of last, if we are ever going to celebrate a browser going away, this would be the one because it's really the end of that model and a move to a much more modern web. Even for enterprises, they are upgrading at a much faster clip for security. Yeah, and I wonder if it, if kind of that shift for, if you think about the pace of innovation in, in front end tooling, you know, do you think that that will allow the the community of open source or commercial front end tools to move at a faster pace, not having all of that years old baggage to support in in IE eleven and the older browsers? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, it's inevitable. I mean, if, if that upgrade cycle from, oh, we got to worry about the browser that came out 10 years ago goes to like, we got to worry about the browser that came out two years ago. That's a very different story. It's still TBD how close we'll get to, you know, the kind of evergreen model, but certainly with everyone getting auto upgraded, that's, we're pretty close to evergreen with the, with the latest set of browsers. Moving on a bit, tell me a bit about Pika. I mean, this is the kind of the company you founded around uh, Snowpack and Skypack. What led you to to start a company and what are your goals with Pika? Yeah, so I originally started Pika as this just kind of like I had an itch that I wanted to scratch. I was working at a company called Ripple at the time. I was just, you know, essentially a front end dev and was starting to kind of pull on some of the work that I'd done when I was at Google, which was around uh, the Polymer team. So that was a Google's Web Components project. This idea of Web Components as a new kind of module format for components, uh, for front end components. And a lot of that started to introduce this idea of 
JavaScript and bundlers aren't the foundation that you build on top of. HTML, CSS, and JavaScript kind of working together is the foundation. So they had some kind of really ahead of their time tooling around HTML being your kind of module format and your uh, like application kind of base layer. Some stuff which kind of made its way into standards and some stuff like HTML imports just kind of never really uh, found their way out there. But that idea kind of stuck with me. And while I was at Ripple, started to pick it back up again, but now trying to just approach it from like a totally greenfield, like what do developers need right now? So Pika was really just this like umbrella of like fun, exciting projects, mostly centered around this import export, this ESM technology. So there was a, uh, the CDN kind of came out of the early days of that. Snowpack came out of a project from there. Um, there was a CICD tool. There was a, a registry that we played around, an editor. There was like all these fun experiments. Um, that was just really me scratching an itch. I eventually ended up leaving Ripple to work on that full time once there really started to be this momentum. So kind of just mainly focused on that, doing some contracting work on the side. And then the CDN kind of presented itself to be this, this opportunity to build some sort of foundational component of web development, the CDN. And so seeing the kind of, there's a, you know, a business opportunity around that, still figuring out what part of that, how that fits in, but really kind of excited to see the Snowpack and Skypack being the two things that have come out of that project is really kind of the exciting connecting with developers story that we're seeing today. You know, for, for folks out there who are interested in getting into you know, open source contribution in the front end space or building developer tools, like what would you recommend, you know, maybe for folks who are earlier in their career and really excited about working with these tools and want to make the jump to being a, an open source contributor? Yeah, I mean, every open source project, you know, needs help. I, I can't speak for everyone, but it's, it's you know, a common, a common sort of not even criticism, but just thing that no one really knows the answer to of how do we make open source work sustainable? We're still figuring that out, but a lot of it is just people who are using these tools. That's the best person to get involved with improving the tools. And whether that's documentation, even just filing the bugs you see, you know, you'd be amazed how many times someone writes a bug report and then instantly it's like, oh, me too, me too, me too. And it's like, oh, great. Like somebody kind of raised the flag and then everyone else was like, oh yeah, I've seen this as well. Being that first person, that's like the first way that we find out about these bugs. So even just kind of raising your hand when you see something confusing or a, a, a bug that on its own is a pretty useful contribution. Yeah, it's really just about kind of getting involved and no open source project really does that onboarding flow, right? So there is a bit of that like putting yourself out there as a contributor that you kind of have to break through, which is like, hey, do you, do you want help? Which I know it felt really unnatural for me when I first started, but it really is, you know, everyone's looking for help, but very few open source projects are very good about kind of the outreach side of it. I guess on that note, like, how do you think about building the community around Snowpack? Like, is that something you've done intentionally or has it kind of just formed organically around the project as more and more people use it for their projects and make kind of small contributions to, to fix issues? Or do you actively promote the community and, and try to drive more engagement? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I've, I've been working with open source, you know, technologies now or like communities for 10 years almost. So it's kind of hard to uh, hard to pull apart what's intentional and what's just like learned muscle muscle reaction. It's a lot of what the Pika project was about was just kind of putting these ideas out there and seeing what connected with people. So a lot of the early growth was really just organic people really connecting with Snowpack, starting to kind of contribute, starting to just kind of reach out, starting to talk about it on Twitter. Um, all of that was really natural. And then it's just kind of like, okay, that's clearly where I should be focusing my time. There's people who want this. That kind of, I think it's the two kind of feed off of each other. Like if I see people getting excited, I that gets me excited. That makes me want to kind of, you know, post more, build more features and such. 
Tell me, like, outside of Snowpack, what are you most excited about in front-end tooling? Yeah, what do you see as kind of some big and important trends over the next few years in the world of, of front-end? Yeah, there's there's a lot happening right now after, you know, I think these things happen in waves. It seems like there's a lot of uh, activity, all of which seems really good for both, like, the user and the developer. So it's really exciting to see. A couple of things. I mean, one is what we are focused on, this idea of unbundled development, I think is, is just clearly showing promise. Um, when we can kind of say that, you know, we'll give you a much faster dev flow with the exact same end result. It's really not because we built anything super impressive technology-wise. We're just changing the model. We're flipping it kind of on its head in a really exciting way. So just by doing less, it's not a faster bundler. It's just the idea of less bundling. Uh, Wasm as a technology is really interesting and in how that's being integrated into JavaScript tooling. After, I think, like, you know, years and years of excitement, we're finally seeing the fruits of that with... Uh, Different projects spinning up. The ES Build is one that's really exciting right now. This idea of a Go-based bundler for JavaScript. So, looking at the Webpack problem not as a problem with the model, but of let's just make this faster. And using Wasm, using this compiled language, they can achieve a speed that just JavaScript. You know, for everything we love about it, it's not very good at computation and that kind of heavy work that a compiled language like Go is at. So they're seeing incredible times with that. You know, that is. We'll see if, if all of our tooling ends up getting replaced by Wasm. I think what's much more likely is what we're looking at, which is the idea of kind of merging these two ideas together, bringing Wasm into your JavaScript tooling. So Snowpack uses uh, ESBuild internally, but we're still a JavaScript tool. So we kind of get the speed benefit without asking you to kind of throw out everything about your tool, kind of throwing out how approachable it feels as a JavaScript developer. It's, our tool is still in JavaScript, but we just get to kind of get that same speed benefit for the really expensive parts of Snowpack. So Fred, thanks so much for teaching us about Skypack and Snowpack, you know, really interesting projects. And I'm really excited to see where they go in the future. What if someone listening today wants to get involved and, and how should they, how should they do that? Should I just reach out to you directly? Um, yeah, you can. I will definitely be that person who answers uh, if you reach out on Twitter, but we have a great Discord community on Snowpack. Snowpack.dev is the website that has all the links. Um, you can find us on GitHub, Twitter please get involved. We're, we're looking for all the help we can get. And the community is really kind of excited and growing. So really exciting time to get involved. Great. Well, thanks again, Fred. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for having me. PodRocket is sponsored by LogRocket, a front-end monitoring and product analytics solution. And just to say it's not really sponsored by anyone, it's sponsored by us, LogRocket. We're giving it to you for free. The, the podcast is free. The product is not free, although there is a free trial. We can split hairs on whether or not that's free to you. But anyway, there are no other ads. That's it. Please check out logrocket.com if you're interested. So Webpack 5 was released on October 10th, 2020. And there are a lot of big changes focusing mostly on performance and web standards. With me now is Kalen, who is our front end engineer at Logrocket. Hey, Kalen. Hey. How are you? Great. Nice. Excited for this big release. Me too. But I don't understand most of what's happening. So do you want me to, I could read for everyone kind of the little bullets here that they're in the docs that say what, what it is, and then maybe we can kind of break it down. You want to do that? Sure. All right. I won't read them all word for word, but basically it's talking about improving their build performance for persistent caching, improving long-term caching, improving bundle size with better tree shaking and code generation, there's improving cat compatibility with the web platform, cleaning up internal structures. It says they're with, without any breaking changes. 
So we can talk about that. And then just preparing for future releases. So it looks like of these, maybe the first two are the, I don't know if they're the most interesting, the most important. Uh, certainly in the most important from a developer perspective. Any developer that's ever, ever used Webpack knows how slow the development version of Webpack can be, especially on like larger apps, especially some companies that have, you know, literally thousands of modules can take five minutes to restart Webpack, which you need to do every time you switch branches and stuff like that. And that's really one of the big changes here. They're, they're introducing a persistent cache that's stored in the file system. It's opt-in, uh, it's not enabled by default. But basically what that would do is after you restart Webpack, it's now gonna be faster. That has been done before, but because of the way that Webpack works, it was very isolated. Like each individual loader, like the Babel loader, for instance, that had its own cache. But then like another loader would use the same resource, but it would have to, it uh, would not be cached on the Webpack level, it would be cached on the loader level. So basically what this release does is improve the caching by having it a more like internal unified Webpack thing. Do you feel like that's something people were asking for? Or is this it's just definitely kind of a feature? It's definitely a feature that like other bundlers have started to add, like Parcel, I think, has persistent cache or something like it. I okay. think uh, Snowpack does something similar. Basically, all of them are faster, and that's one of the big reasons why they're faster. And also, the second bullet point is actually fixing a huge wart that Webpack has had for a very long time, and that like you would have a module. And well, to back up a little bit, the way that Webpack would identify modules is they would give it a module ID, but that was not actually deterministic, meaning that if you had the same code and you built it again, sometimes it would give it a different ID, even though that the code is functionally the same. And that's pretty bad because if you relied on that for caching, then your cache would be busted, which would slow down Webpack. But also if you add the chunk ID to your file names, and then you rely upon that for like client-side caching for your clients, you know, uh, yeah. then you could ship a release and then a module didn't actually change, but it would have a new ID. So it would get a new file name. So then all your users would fetch the same resource again. So it has actually a pretty big impact, not only on developers, but on, on people who use apps built with Webpack. And this is enabled by default in Webpack 5. So that's great. It feels like a, a suboptimal experience <laughs> to, to do it. Why? Why would you build it that way? Uh, it's complicated. Uh, I'm ready. Hit me. Uh, it's complicated. Okay. Uh, essentially, I'd have to go through the code individually, but it, it can actually be very easy to break something like that. If you introduce code that is accidentally not deterministic somewhere uh, in tons of other code depends on that, then the whole thing isn't deterministic, essentially. And especially when you think about how big Webpack has gotten over the years, you have how many contributors now? And we'll talk about that later, but Back in the day when it was only one person, Sokra, the famous developer of Webpack, I'm sure it was a lot easier to not introduce bugs like that, but it's great that, they're actually, that they actually fix the problem. I know uh, LogRocket actually uses a plugin that fixes this problem, so we can now remove that plugin. So bad for the plugin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a terrible <laughs> joke, but I'm going to keep going. Um, oh, on a slide. Thank you. I appreciate it. So what about the other ones? The other sort of bullet points here, are they just kind of nice-to-haves or just like do you care about tree shaking and code generation or is that just like the bundle size? Is that? Tree shaking, I have not actually had much experience using mostly because the things that I have used have not support tree shaking, but I'm really intrigued by 
couple of the bullet points in this web in this release, which is quite exciting. Um, so the reason why I, I haven't really used tree shaking or the reason why I, it hasn't really impacted me much is that it's very easy to break it. And one of the reasons why uh, you can see down here, if you have nested modules, sometimes that could break it. For instance, if you do export from anywhere, the module that you're exporting from, that would not be tree shaped. But that's fixed now. Also, Webpack 4 didn't actually analyze dependencies between exports and imports of a module uh, in precisely the right way. And that's also fixed. Uh, but most importantly, uh, this release has CommonJS tree shaking, which is big because most of the community still uses CommonJS modules, even though that ECMAScript modules have been a thing for a couple of years now. That will probably result in a lot of people adopting tree shaking, especially since it looks like it doesn't need a lot of work for the developer to get that working. Oh, and also Webpack 5 now uses static analysis to automatically flag modules as side effect free. If you weren't aware of it previously, you needed to add a flag to the package JSON file for our module to mark it as side effect free. And that basically means that this module is safe to tree shake. If that hasn't been flagged, then that entire module would not even be touched from the tree shaking algorithm. So what this means for developers is if you upgrade to Webpack 5, your bundle size is probably going to be much lower if you happen to be using modules that can take advantage of these upgrades. I feel like we have two options here, right? We can keep talking about Webpack 5 and whether or not you should upgrade or things you should consider, or we can we can talk about what the internet has to say about Webpack 5. Which do you want to do first? Um, well, I would just say one final thing about this release that, that okay. I'm also excited about, and that's the compatibility with the web platform. One of the great things about Webpack is that you don't have to you know, use a separate tool for your images and JSON, stuff like that. That's definitely ha has been improved uh, in Webpack 5. Uh, if I had to sum it up, it would be like a lot of small changes. But one of the things I'm excited for is improvements with native worker support. As someone who uses workers, it can be a challenge to get that working with the bundler. Why? Uh, because it's, it's different. Uh, bundlers need to be their own entry point. They're kind of a different kind of module and handling that right has always been a challenge. You needed to use a, a plugin uh, in previous versions of Webpack and I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure you don't need to use that plugin now. Basically something for everyone in this release. Do we use that? Is that where, like here at LogRocket, is that where? Yeah, we use the worker plugin. Okay. So to replay video uh, session recordings, the state is fetched in a worker, and that has to be, you know, its own module. And mm. our, our build is also very complicated because it's split between, it's a monorepo, and it's split between many different Webpack builds. Oh, I know it's a monorepo. There's a great yes. blog post out there. Yes, there is. <laughs> that was written almost three years ago. One of our uh, weakest ones. What'd you say, weakest or biggest? Biggest. It was, it's, it's uh, people love the monorepo. When it comes time for recruiting, they do come back to the monorepo blog post that Pascal, our director of engineering, wrote. But that doesn't really matter uh, as it pertains to Webpack 5. So are we going to, do you think we'll upgrade here or not? Or do you think we should? For various complicated reasons, LogRocket is actually on a relatively old version of Node that has prevented us from upgrading a lot of things. 
but okay. that's actually been a priority recently, mostly because LogRocket uh, on-prem supports many different platforms. It means that we need to have a, a low, lowest common denominator as, as far as node versions goes, and that's been a challenge for us. Do you feel like I'll get yelled at uh, for bringing that up later in life? <laughs> uh, potentially. Or, potentially. <laughs> nice. Okay, cool. I look forward to that, Matt and Ben, co-founders of LogRocket, uh, taskmasters. <laughs> okay, so if you had your own project, um, what are the things, and I know you do anyway, what would you consider when it comes to upgrading? Like what are the things that you would do, or think about, not think about, so on? Yeah, the absolute very first thing that I would do before I upgrade is I go on GitHub, go to the issues tab, filter by that release, and see how many people are complaining about you know, core things being broken in this release. That's one of the reasons why I would always be very hesitant to upgrade like on a major version, usually I would wait to like, you know, X.1 release or something like that. So there like, are the yeah. same thing that I do for like any Mac OS release, you would do the yeah. same thing, but got it. Pretty All much. Right, well, um, okay. Yeah. I mean, um, there hasn't been that much issues opened and I don't see any that are like super breaking, but just to be on the safe side, if you're like a large application, I know how how difficult it can be when you know you've upgraded, and then you spent all this time, and then you find a a big bug that's preventing you from upgrading. I don't see anything here, but I would probably wait like a week or so at least. I will say though, they have closed a lot of issues. The webpack team is very very good at their post release bug fixing. But, right, you, uh, like, you like you like the webpack team. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I would upgrade now if if I was like really frustrated with the speed of Webpack, or if I really needed to take advantage of some of the new script module features. One thing, so one thing that popped into my head when you mentioned why maybe we won't upgrade right away is: are there some kinds of apps that are more likely to not upgrade versus others? Like, is there some commonality there, or is it just kind of? depending very much on who's using it or what the infrastructure is, et cetera. Yeah, well, definitely the node version is a, is a big blocker, I think, for a lot of people. It, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved. <laughs> a lot of, you know, hand-holding hand with other teams, like DevOps teams, especially for the front-end team to convince them to upgrade node. And I think there's been a change recently in the community where people are more willing to only support the like newest versions of Node, at least that's just from my personal experience, but that's definitely, that seems to have been a trend, uh, which which can be good, but can also be kind of bad for some teams. Hmm. I feel like I want to think more about the hand-holding between DevOps and front-end, but I think that maybe it could be a whole separate episode. And Oh, definitely. Yeah. So maybe we'll come back to it. Okay. So... What else? Is there anything else that we should think about between, you mentioned NPM before before we started talking, before we started recording, I should say. Like, is there, is now a good time to talk about that or will we come back later? It's always good to talk about NPM. It's the corest part of the infrastructure of open source front-end development. There was a, a big release recently, NPM 7, which can be summed up with a couple short Blurbs essentially now supports workspaces. So it, uh, managing multiple packages is now easier. 
such as you know yarn workspaces or Lerna, for instance. It's always good to have support in that realm because yarn workspaces and well, yarn workspaces is you know obviously a core feature of yarn. But if you're stuck with npm, you have to rely upon Lerna, which you know <laughs> LogRocket uses Lerna, so we're well aware of the works with Lerna. So this is exciting for for, for, uh, for LogRocket at least. Also, a big one is installing peer dependencies automatically, especially for newer developers. That can be very confusing that it didn't do that. Also, teaching people what peer dependencies are in general can be a challenge. And also, changes the package lock to make it to harmonize it essentially with the yarn lock, which could be useful to protein switching, I would say. What? Also, it's faster, which is important. But notably, it is still not as fast as yarn. Is that, I mean, obviously it's better to be faster, but that's not the only thing. Or is it? No, it's not. Um, I've always preferred uh, NPM for the singular, very stupid reason that there's no way to install a package in Yarn without saving it to the, to the package JSON file, which I always found very stupid uh, for peer dependencies, actually, because you cannot install a package that is a peer dependency without saving it to the dependencies. Yeah. Uh, just a weird oversight that. You can see on the GitHub issue where there's like thousands of people complaining about this, and they're like, "Nope, nope, nope." So you think there's just somebody there? Who's I think they obstinate and yeah, really. Do you want to they name have, them or? No, I don't okay. know who it is. They have their. Own <laughs> I don't either. Vision. Yeah. Okay. They they have their own vision for what this should be, and I respect that. But thankfully, there are alternatives. I'm disappointed in you for taking the high road, Kalen, but that's okay. <laughs> Okay. I do take it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Returning. Do you want to go back to Webpack 5 or we just keep going about NPM? Because really all I have left really is to talk more about kind of alternatives to Webpack 5 that you might use instead. Like, okay. But I guess the situation is if you're making thinking about making a change from Webpack 4 right now, you'd either be thinking about using some something else altogether or upgrading, right? I mean, that's really the only, because if you're, if you're happy with Webpack 4, you might just wait, like you said, you might just wait for Webpack 5 to sort of stabilize. But, or you might think about alternatives. Do you have any alternatives? So I've actually pretty much used all the bundlers in my side projects. I've used Snowpack, I've used Parcel. That was probably the last one that I used besides Webpack. If, if I had to pick a new project, I use TypeScript. And so TypeScript is one of the things that I look at the most. So mean, I like with a bundler. Yeah, support yeah. for TypeScript. I've had problems in the past with TypeScript support and parcel, but that was a while ago. And I mean, things have probably changed. So if I was starting a new project, I would look at probably how difficult is it to, to, to get started, to configure it. If I was, well, if I only use that as a metric, I would probably go with Snowpack, mostly because I like its approach to development. It's unbundled during development, which I think is pretty cool. I've never seen that before. It certainly has its uh, positives when it comes to caching. Also, it's just like anything you can do to reduce the complexity of a tool without sacrificing features, I think is a, is a good improvement. Well, so that was my question, right? Is that you are evaluating kind of which bundler to use or the criteria is basically, is it Criterion is uh, difficult to set up or not. So, what is difficult to you? Webpack. <laughs> I, okay, Webpack. you know what I'm asking. <laughs> is yeah. it? Does it? 
what specifically makes it difficult? I would say the number of packages that you have to install, uh, okay. which is why I, which is why I like to parcel a lot. You know, it's just like, oh, you want TypeScript? Boom, you get TypeScript. You don't have to do anything. Hmm. I'm pretty sure Snowpack is similar. So, yeah. okay, so time and yeah. you said complexity earlier, which just means fewer packages, which makes sense. Well, not just fewer packages, but like less things that can break. Like <laughs> Webpack has so many moving parts. Right. Yeah. But okay. if I was writing a library, of course, I would still go with Rollup. LogRocket has a blog post on that. That's still by, by far the most agreeable solution for a library. Although I would say that Webpack is probably approaching the point when it comes to the point when it comes to ECMAScript module generation, where you might consider using Webpack, but uh, Rollup is probably still faster because it's doing less things. Although maybe not, maybe not with persistent caching. It's probably worth a deeper analysis. Okay, I'm ready for um, a deeper analysis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe a blog post in the future. Okay, so what do other bundlers have to do with Webpack 5 and the changes? Yeah, so like I said earlier, if I had to pick the two biggest, in my mind, competitors with Webpack, it would be Parcel and Snowpack. I would say, well, this release is new and I think some speed comparisons are probably gonna, be have, to, probably gonna have to be done, but if the sticker on the release is true, then I would say that those, both of those are less compelling. But there's a, a big elephant in the room when it comes to bundlers, and that is Rust. There's a couple Rust uh, JavaScript bundlers that have been getting a ton of stars in GitHub. Like what? What are the names? Uh, the two biggest ones, I guess, would you, I would consider them Pax, which claims to be the fastest JavaScript bundler in the galaxy. <laughs> okay. And uh, another one that I've seen is Clap with a K. Both of them are, I would say, bare bones when it comes to bundling. bundling. Uh, I would not like use it as drop-in replacement for Webpack, but if I was you know, starting a smaller side project, I would definitely consider that. Actually, when I went just doing a cursory analysis of the repo, it seems like Clap has been the clear winner here. This one also supports uh, like React style components, JSX and stuff like that. Another big topic when it comes to Rust bundling is the fact that it still has to rely upon the TypeScript runtime, which when you're bundling with Rust, it seems, I'm struggling to find an analogy. It's like, uh, you have a Ferrari and then you have like a 1970s buggy or something. You're just, you're just like weighed down by the TypeScript runtime so much. You have your bundler that is now like extremely fast and then TypeScript is like literally hundred times slower. So I do think that's the future, but. The future of what? You're not gonna use that at work for any reason. Well, give it a couple of years. I mean, Webpack has had so many years of development now and it supports pretty much every aspect that you could possibly want in some way or another, or with the plugin. But it's still limited by the language. It's gonna take time for the, as Rust becomes more popular and as more front-end developers, you know, also learn Rust, I think that will be the sea change. Potentially even in the future with, when it comes to WebAssembly, maybe Webpack starts adopting Rust components. And I know um, 
in part of the Webpack internals part of this release. The fact that the changes that they've been making, it seems like that might become more easier in the future. I haven't gone away. I just am considering your <laughs> assertions. Okay. I mean, it's speculative. I can't, I can't say whether you're right or wrong. I'm still right about the part where you're not using it at work today. You might be right in two years or something. And you look oh. like a, you look like a hero. <laughs> Alternatively, Webpack could just, the people at Webpack or who work on Webpack could take your ideas uncredited. I don't think they would ever do that. Yeah. You're far too likable. Definitely. <laughs> uh, another, an honorable mention also, Okay. 14,000 stars in GitHub is ES build, which is written in Go. I missed that. What is it? Uh, ES build. ES build, got it. ES standing for ECMAScript. This one actually uses, hmm, when it comes to speed, it's like literally 164 times faster than Webpack 4, which is pretty impressive. It also transpiles TypeScript, but it does not type check it. So again, you're going to have to use the TypeScript type checker. I have heard rumblings in the community that people are starting to consider rewriting TypeScript in Rust or Go or something like that. So, which again is an even larger project, but when that happens, I think, you know, you'll have another change in the community moving away from finally dropping the last vestiges of the JavaScript tooling ecosystem in favor of Rust. Which you're in favor of. Oh, definitely. Okay. Well. Is it, is that's not a unanimous opinion. You said it definitely like, yes. <laughs> well, I, I haven't actually encountered many people who are against Rust. Let's put it that way. Well, you're good at now because I'll give them your email address and you'll find them. <laughs> um, yes, comment section. Okay. All right, well, I think we're done here as it relates to Webpack 5. Thanks for listening. So that's it. Episode number one of Pod Rocket in the books. Is there anyone you want to thank, Ben? Yeah, definitely. I want to thank Fred one more time. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. And also uh, Dan Schlosser and Kate Trahan, uh, who had some of the ideas for the questions or some of those uh, things we discussed with Fred. So thanks to everyone. And we should also, I mean, thank Kate again. And same, same Kate, Kate Trahan, who's the producer of the podcast and did all the work in getting the podcast off the ground. So thanks, Kate. Yep. Thank you, Kate. I would like to thank uh, Kaylin Cooter, our friend and engineer at LogRocket friend and colleague, esteemed guest. Hopefully he'll be back. Thank you for listening to Pod Rocket. Remember to like and subscribe. I know you've never heard that before, but in this case, we really mean it. Um, so do it. But it's like the easiest thing that you could do, honestly. So thank you. We'll see you next time.